Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation, and instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Glenda, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Lymphoma Research Foundation and Cancer Care Program update on lymphoma from the 2017 American Society of Hematology, or ASH, annual meeting. This has become an annual event. Every year we do this program, and we're delighted with um, this collaboration um, with the Lymphoma Research Foundation, who have really been incredibly important in making this program possible. And um, I want to just identify that we have lots of people on the call, so this is a great interest to all of you. We have over 625 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, so all different parts of the United States. And we also have people on the call from Australia, Bulgaria, Canada, Grenada, India, Iran, Italy, Ireland, Puerto Rico, South Africa, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So you really come from all over the world, and it's a bit of a global call as well. And today's program is supported through unrestricted educational grants to the Lymphoma Research Foundation from Bristol-Myers Squibb, Cell Gene Corporation, and Genentech Bio-Oncology, Biogen, IDEC. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program, and particularly I want to thank the Lymphoma Research Foundation for really being so important in making this program possible today. Now, we have wonderful speakers, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Stephen Ensel. Dr. Ensel is Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. He's Consultant, Division of Hematology, Department of Internal Medicine, Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Ansel is going to address an overview of the 2017 American Society of Hematology Annual Meeting, and he will also address an overview of lymphoma, a new research presented at ASH, and he'll also talk about disease-specific updates from ASH on indolent lymphoma, follicular lymphoma, and mantle cell lymphoma. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Ansel. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Messner, and thank you very much for everybody who's on the call. We trust that this will be interesting and informative, and thank you for letting me participate. So uh, my goal today is really to take a few minutes, discuss exactly what the American Society of Hematology annual meeting is all about, <clears throat> talk a little bit about lymphoma, because our focus is going to be on the data related to lymphoma from that meeting, I want to then focus in on just a little bit of basic research, and that's really because these are basic research findings that are beginning to impact clinical practice, and so I think are really going to be highly relevant to people in the future, and actually already are becoming relevant in lymphoma. And then specifically, as Dr. Messner said, focus in on follicular and mantle cell lymphoma, just giving you a little bit of a highlight of some of the data uh, that came up from this meeting. But obviously, there'll be plenty of time at the, at the end to discuss uh, this all in greater detail. So once a year, uh, hematologists from all around the, the world get together at the American Society of Hematology annual meeting. And this is a large meeting. Uh, many thousands of people participate. It's an excellent collaboration between treating physicians who see patients scientists who, uh, who do basic research, uh, industry partners who uh, are uh, developing new agents, and various uh, groups that are advocates for patients, including uh, the Lymphoma Research Foundation. And it's a sharing of information. 
in some respects there is so much information that it's quite difficult to be always clear on uh, on on what you should visit and see but it's usually something that you prepare ahead of time so you make a point of getting to the presentations that are the most interesting and people will either present in the format of a speaking uh, uh, period where they'll speak for 10 minutes and take questions. There are poster sessions where data is put up on poster boards, and it is a sharing of, of information across all of these uh, fora. So um, <clears throat> really want to highlight again the data related to lymphoma. And just to remind, many on the call are very familiar with lymphoma, but lymphoma is a cancer of lymphocytes, and lymphocytes are part of your normal body's immune system. But the, these, systems, these cells can become abnormal, often because of genetic changes, sometimes because of microenvironment changes where the uh, cells around them are stimulating them. And as they grow, they often will uh, fill up lymph nodes with extra cells. They will fill up bone marrow with extra cells and then begin to affect patients uh, either in a rapid fashion or slow fashion, depend, depending on the different type of lymphoma really important for us who treat lymphoma to get to the bottom of what kind of lymphoma it is so we can be very specific in our treatments. And as you're going to hear in a minute, it matters because the data that we're going to talk about from the meeting is specific many times for all of these different types of, uh, of lymphoma. So I want to start off with just highlighting two basic research findings that were presented at the meeting that I really thought were very interesting and very helpful. The first is uh, what we are calling liquid biopsies. So many would, who have followed lymphoma research will know that a lot of work has been done on tumor cells obtained from the tumor that uh, are analyzed for genetic mutations and abnormalities that allow us to know can we target these mutations and changes as a, as a therapy or can we better understand why cancer cells become abnormal and why they grow and why they won't die off like they are supposed to. But the interesting thing is we're now learning that some of the DNA from these tumor cells actually begin to float around either free in the serum of patients or in little uh, pockets of, um, of protein called vesicles where the DNA is trapped but actually circulating around. And it's actually a very useful way to get a global look at what's happening uh, as regards the tumor across the whole patient. It's also extremely helpful in being able to understand are patients benefiting from treatment or are they uh, likely to have their disease recur. And there have been a number of presentations at the uh, ASH meeting that really allow us to use this in a way to identify patients who are at risk for bad outcomes because they have these genetic mutations that we can already detect from their tumor cell but detected in the blood there are further presentations showing that those genetic mutations should, be, should disappear out of the blood when patients are responding well and are staying in remission. And there are further presentations showing that as it comes back or is again detectable in the blood, this is going to be something that's going to be a useful test to tell in a very early way whether the cells are, are becoming active again and whether the patient is at risk for having disease uh, progression. So it's not quite at the point where it is now 100% useful uh, in clinical practice, but I would not be shocked if within the next two to three years, this is something that is used in many clinical practices, either as a way to obtain more information about the tumor without needing to stick a needle or take a piece out of the, from the tumor, and also as a way to track what's happening with the disease. 
So understanding the genetics out of the bloodstream is one thing that I wanted to highlight. Second thing that I wanted to highlight as far as basic research is concerned <clears throat> is the fact that there are now uh, very successful what are called PDX models. So these are ways in which you can take a piece of a patient's tumor and put it into a mouse and really create that tumor in, a, in, a, uh, in an organism, a mouse, which allow us to then test a variety of different genetic therapies, a variety of different drug therapies, immune therapies, as a way to really uh, determine whether in these mice you can actually achieve this and use this as a potential tool for understanding biology. In the past, these were only really successful in very aggressive cancers that kind of grew almost regardless of where they were. Data that was presented at this meeting, which I think is very helpful, is that it's now become possible to put much more low-grade, slow-growing tumors into these kinds of models, including T-cell lymphoma, including follicular lymphoma. And this will allow us new ways in which we can really understand whether we uh, understand more about the actual uh, biology of the disease, but also potentially use this as a way to treat patients because, uh, based on, on what we can understand in the mouse model. So two things, I think, from a basic biology side of things, which were very interesting from this uh, ASH meeting, testing the DNA out of the peripheral blood and using that to understand the tumor and understand response, and number two, putting tumors into mice that allow us to actually use that as a surrogate of testing things in people, we could actually test it in mice specific to particular patients. So with the uh, last sort of uh, five or six minutes that uh, I have, <clears throat> wanted to focus a little bit on some of the uh, subsets of different uh, lymphomas and the information that came out. And Dr. Sen, who's going to be talking after me, will talk about some of the other histologies. So if you don't hear me address the particular histology that you might be interested in, do not despair. Uh, she's going to be speaking about it shortly. So the two diseases that I wanted to focus in on was follicular lymphoma and mantle cell lymphoma. So most, of, most people will know that follicular lymphoma and other indolent lymphomas are low-grade, slow-growing kinds of lymphoma. And in general, our treatment is to get the disease under control and then hopefully keep it under control for the long term. There are different patients. Some people may not even need treatment right away. Some people may need only mild treatment. And some people may require more treatment um, and for a longer period of time. So wanted to highlight three studies that were presented. These are large uh, comparative studies with now pretty long follow-up, trying to understand how we can cont continue to maintain the benefit uh, of, uh, of treatment for patients with particularly follicular lymphoma. So there were three studies. One is a trial that was done now with almost 10 years of follow-up, looking at rituximab, which is an anti-CD30 antibody, as maintenance after standard chemotherapy and showing that if you use rituximab therapy and we follow these patients over a long period of time compared to just using chemotherapy and then just observing patients with no treatment, there is a clear advantage for patients remaining in remission if they receive the rituximab therapy. There were two other studies that really have shown the same thing. Uh, the, the study I just mentioned was called the PRIMA trial. The study, other study is the BRIGHT or the STILL trial. Both of these did the same thing where they used maintenance therapy after initial treatment and showed that there is durable benefit for patients if they receive 
rituximab, the anti-CD20 antibody, instead of just being observed. The differences between a number of these studies was in what kind of chemotherapy they received. The initial study used mainly RCHOP and RCVP chemotherapies. The newer studies using bendamustine plus rituximab, all of them then followed with rituximab or maintenance therapy. And in all of these studies, almost regardless, well, regardless of the chemotherapy used, the outcomes are better if one uses maintenance therapy. A further study, the STILL study, which was the STILL Maintain trial, fancy name for the study, was using again the combination of bendamustine plus rituximab, but now rather than looking at what chemotherapy, it was looking at whether it was better to give four years of maintenance therapy versus the standard two years. And there is a suggestion from this study that continuing with maintenance therapy even longer, four years in this case, can be significantly beneficial for patients in keeping them in remission. So particularly for the group of patients where the disease is badly behaved, it requires a chemotherapy plus antibody approach to get it under control. Maintaining is standard of care and might even be now based on this data that longer term maintenance may be beneficial to keep people in remission. The final thing that I just wanted to highlight was uh, mantle cell lymphoma. Many people will know that mantle cell lymphoma is a little more aggressive than the indolent follicular type lymphomas. It tends to be a little more likely to recur and it tends to be a little more relentless in its nature. So new drugs are really useful to treat diseases like this. And a family of new drugs that has been very effective in mantle cell lymphoma are BTK inhibitors, Bruton, Bruton tyrosine kinase. And that's actually a protein that has to do with the signaling that comes in through the B cell receptor. So by shutting off the signaling, you quiet the cell down, the cell then becomes apoptotic and dies off and stops growing. So originally the treatment was using a drug called abrutinib, and the efficacy was quite promising, high response rates, but the initial reports were just really about the responses and not about the durability. So at this meeting was an update showing that the treatment remains effective and can be quite durable in a subset of patients. Clearly, it's not a treatment that cures everybody, but it does control the disease uh, in a sizable percentage of patients. Now, there have been a number of studies uh, subsequently using next generation of these BTK inhibitors, one called a calibrutinib, another that just has a code name BGB3111. But both of those molecules were used, these are pills, that are used in patients with mantle cell lymphoma. And trials were presented in the same forum as the discussion about abrutinib, showing that these are very effective agents, highly successful in controlling mantle cell lymphoma with durable responses. A lot of discussion about how well they are tolerated. In general, these are quite well tolerated medications, but they do have some side effects, including things like irregular heartbeats and bruising and the like. And so obviously newer drugs that have less in the way of side effects are what we're always striving for. In general, however, this is an effective class of drugs, relatively well tolerated. Many patients can benefit from it, and it's typically used in patients who have had the disease initially treated, and then it comes back. And clearly, new progress is being made with newer drugs that hopefully are going to be as or if possibly even better and more effective than the standard. 
so I think all told, we were very excited about data that was coming out of the ASH meeting. You're going to hear some more from in a minute from Dr. Sen. But overall, I think uh, many of these, uh, inf the information from many of these trials impacts patients today, and some of the data will obviously impact patients in the future. So with that, I'll thank you for your time and for listening, and I'm going to turn it uh, back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ansel. That was really superb and just a wonderful introduction to the call and, and all of these, a lot of information for everybody to absorb. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next speaker um, is Dr. Lori Sen. Uh, Dr. Sen is Chair of Lymphoma Tumor Group, Associate Editor, Blood Medical Oncologist, British Columbia Cancer Agency, Center for Lymphoid Cancer. She's Clinical Associate Professor, University of British Columbia, Vancouver, British Columbia. And uh, Dr. Sen is going to be addressing specific disease-specific updates on aggressive and Hodgkin lymphoma, talking with the healthcare team about your treatment options and the role of clinical trials and translational research. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Sen. Yes, good morning or good afternoon, depending on whatever you are. Um, it's my pleasure, certainly, to participate in this call today. And I'd like to pick up where Dr. Ansel left off, and that is talk about some of the updates that we saw at the ASH meeting that uh, certainly we're all very excited about. And uh, Dr. Ansel gave you a nice segue into some of the studies that came out in indolent non-Hodgkin lymphoma and mantle cell lymphoma, and I'll take that further and talk a little bit about um, aggressive B-cell and T-cell lymphomas as well as Hodgkin lymphoma. Now, I think one of the things that um, we're most excited about, about all of the information emerging out of ASH at this meeting and for the last several meetings, has really been the evolution that we've seen in terms of a management strategy. So clearly chemotherapy has been a mainstay of treatment for many lymphomas and still remains very important in, in most settings for managing patients with lymphoma. But what we've seen evolve over time is that our greater understanding of the biology of lymphoma that Dr. Ansel talked about um, has really led toward the development of novel therapies that we think of as targeted therapies, meaning that they've been designed to specifically attack or exploit a, a marker that may be unique to lymphoma or preferentially seen on the lymphoma and, and less so on normal body cells so that we can attack the cells more specifically and try to avoid toxicity to the other cells in the body. So this ASH was, um, was certainly a continuation of that theme where we saw uh, further data presented on strategies looking at new targeted therapies, um, as well as the second theme of the meeting, of course, is a focus on immunotherapy. So over the last several years, we've found that um, immunotherapy has become a very effective way of potentially treating certain lymphomas, and, and this has continued with the recent meetings uh, with a lot more information on the potential use of immunotherapies across a variety of lymphomas. So focusing in on, on aggressive B-cell lymphoma particularly. Now, in contrast to slow-growing or indolent non-Hodgkin lymphomas, aggressive lymphomas tend to grow much more rapidly. So rather than evolving over years of time, these are lymphomas that can often grow over weeks to months of time. And, and as a consequence, they really do pose a more immediate 
threat and, and requirement for treatment. We have many treatments that patients get in the initial go-rounds of therapy, and most of those treatments rely on chemotherapy, and um, many of the drugs are very effective. Many aggressive lymphomas can actually be cured with our upfront strategies. What becomes much more challenging is um, treatment of disease that comes back despite receiving initial therapy. So the treatment of relapsed or what we sometimes call refractory lymphomas, and those are lymphomas that are not responding well to standard therapies. I have to say that probably the most exciting information related ASH this year, in my mind, had to do with uh, updates on what we refer to as CAR T-cell therapy. So many of you have probably been reading about CAR T-cell therapy. It's been an exciting step forward in, in lymphoma management. And this refers to the a very specific type of immunotherapy that is what we call a cellular therapy. So it uses cells or specifically T cells from patients' own bodies to try and fight off their own lymphoma. And the way that CAR T-cell therapy is performed is that patients actually undergo a procedure where their T cells are what we call fereased or, or um, acquired from their own body. And then the T cells are then genetically modified so that they will now be sort of forced to recognize a marker that's present on most B cell lymphomas. So when they get transfused back into patients, these T cells are now programmed or genetically wired to look for this marker and to stick on this marker, which is present on lymphoma cells, and to hopefully induce an immune reaction and to bring in other cells that are in the immune system to fight off that lymphoma. So this is therapy that's been under development for several years now. Um, the initial, um, initially, there uh, have been CAR T-cell therapies that have been approved by the FDA for acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is a different kind of of uh, lymphoid cancer, and now what we've seen is data emerging on the use of these kinds of therapies, so CAR T-cell therapy in aggressive B-cell lymphoma. So at this year's ASH meeting, we actually saw th three major updates, and that was on clinical trials exploring the use of CAR T-cell therapy for patients with um, mainly aggressive B-cell lymphoma, so that would include diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Some of the trials looked at other types of aggressive B-cell lymphoma, such as primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma or so-called transformed lymphoma. That's lymphoma that is an aggressive lymphoma that emerges out of a initial indolent or slow-growing lymphoma. And across the board, these trials showed very, very similar results. And that is that with the use of these CAR T-cell approaches in patients who had otherwise failed pretty much all of the standard options that we have available, including in many cases having failed an autologous stem cell transplant, these cells had a way of, of causing tumor regression and lymphoma clearance in a large proportion of people treated. What was most exciting is that um, although you know, across the board, as many as 70 to 80% of people seem to benefit from these treatments, having their lymphoma shrink away, excitingly, about 40% of people actually had their lymphoma disappear entirely and, and achieve what we would call a complete remission. 
So I think one of the reasons why people are so excited about this data is, number one, it, it's a very unique way of fighting off lymphoma, using the body's own immune cells um, to, to seek and, and destroy lymphoma cells. But at least in the data we've seen so far, in patients who really have kind of run out of standard options that would be thought to be very effective for them, you know, this has sort of achieved benefit out of proportion to what we might have expected. And, and the most exciting results, I think, are that, you know, a fairly high proportion of patients actually have their lymphoma disappear. And with longer follow-up, we're hoping that maybe, you know, this can be a long-term benefit. So right now we're not 100% certain as to what the long-term cure potential of treatments like CAR T-cell in this setting is, but um, at least one of the trials uh, presented data that had follow-up well over a year's time, and many patients on that trial were remaining in a complete remission without evidence of disease. So based on um, some of this data, a CAR T-cell product was actually approved by the FDA just prior to the ASH meeting, actually, for patients with uh, relapsed and refractory aggressive B-cell lymphomas. So this is now a novel therapy that is out and approved um, in the clinical setting and, and might be appropriate for some patients, depending on the circumstance of their lymphoma, and certainly is something that we're all very excited about. Moving forward in terms of other information that was presented, um, again, you know, we're, we're quite excited about a lot of the new emerging therapies that are coming through the pipeline of development, which uh, really have evolved from a greater understanding of biology. One of uh, the interesting uh, presentations that I saw had to do with a new treatment now being developed for patients with cutaneous T-cell lymphomas and Cesare syndrome. So T-cell lymphoma is a more rarer type of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and many T-cell lymphomas um, can involve lymph glands and, and different parts of the body, but there is a kind of T-cell lymphoma that can present predominantly involving the skin initially, and then eventually as it evolves, involve other parts of the body, and, and this can be a kind of lymphoma that's quite challenging to treat. We have many treatments uh, to try and treat cutaneous T-cell lymphoma currently, um, but inevitably most of the what we call um, drug therapy um, for this kind of lymphoma can be quite frustrating as, as many of these drugs only work temporarily or, or don't work very effectively. So at this year's ASH meeting, we actually saw a presentation on a novel drug. The drug is called in keeping with most of the drugs that are very difficult to pronounce, mogamolizumab, which um, very specifically is a drug that targets a molecule that is often present on T-cell lymphomas. That molecule is called CCR4. It's a molecule that's involved in different functions of T-cells, including T-cell movement. And this drug, mogamolizumab, is a monoclonal antibody targeting that molecule called CCR4. The trial that we saw presented at ASH enrolled a group of patients with 
what we call cutaneous or, or skin-related T-cell lymphomas that had failed at least one initial treatment in the past. And this was what we call a randomized study where patients were assigned to one of two treatment options. And one of the options was a standard treatment called varinostat, which is commonly used for T-cell lymphomas. And the other uh, half of patients were assigned to the new drug called mogomolizumab. And the results showed very, very promising activity for the novel drug mogomolizumab. So in, in contrast to the standard treatment uh, group, the treatment group or the patient group getting the novel drug actually had their lymphoma respond more frequently. So we saw a higher likelihood of response but more importantly, we saw a longer benefit from the drug. So people receiving the novel drug, mogomolizumab, actually had um, their lymphoma stay under control for twice as long as people receiving the standard drug, varinostat. So I thought this was exciting information because, again, it opens up a potentially new drug option for patients with cutaneous T-cell lymphomas and um, looking at how this drug works, namely targeting a very specific molecule on T-cell lymphoma, it, it really is uh, a nice example how our understanding of the biology is now translating into these targeted drugs that are showing very effective, um, very effective treatment effects in situations where some of our current drugs are, are lacking in terms of benefit. So this drug has actually been given what we call breakthrough development status through the FDA, meaning that they're trying to look at the data in a very quick fashion to see if it's sufficient to get this drug approved and on the market for cutaneous T-cell lymphomas, and I think many of us anticipate that that will likely happen in the near future. The Next thing I'd like to talk about is to kind of divert over to Hodgkin lymphoma. So Hodgkin lymphoma is also a type of B-cell lymphoma, but it's quite unique in that Hodgkin lymphoma frequently uh, is seen in younger patients. Um, it has a very different biology from, uh, from uh, non-Hodgkin lymphomas. And uh, what we're really seeing in the last few years is that this is a lymphoma where for about 40 years we've been using the same chemotherapy package, namely uh, most typically patients who are, get diagnosed with Hodgkin lymphoma receive chemotherapy uh, with four drugs called ABVD. And that chemotherapy package, ABVD, has really been our standard of care for 40 years now. Over the last several years, we've seen the exciting development and actual uh, FDA approval of several drugs on the market for patients with Hodgkin lymphoma who have failed standard chemotherapy approaches. One of these drugs is a targeted agent called brentuximab. Brentuximab is uh, what we call a drug conjugate. It has an antibody component and a a chemotoxin component combined. So it works by trying to target a very specific molecule on Hodgkin lymphoma called CD30. And when it sticks on the Hodgkin lymphoma cells, it gets swallowed up by the cell and releases a chemical toxin into the cell directly, hopefully sparing a lot of toxicity to the normal body cells. And the other group of drugs that we've seen developed for Hodgkin lymphoma fall under the the group of what we would call immunotherapy or um, 
drugs that are designed to uh, to spark the, the immune system into fighting off lymphoma. And um, there's an exciting group of drugs called checkpoint inhibitors that have also been approved for Hodgkin lymphoma, drugs like nivolumab or pembrolizumab that are also available now for patients who have failed standard therapies. And so what we saw at ASH this year were essentially a series of trials that looked at incorporating some of these novel drugs into our standard treatments for Hodgkin lymphoma. I want to highlight one important trial that was presented in this regard, and that was a trial called the Echelon trial. The Echelon trial was a trial looking at whether or not bringing one of these novel drugs into the first-line setting, or what we call the, the first treatment approach for Hodgkin lymphoma, whether or not bringing one of these drugs into our standard chemotherapy package would actually have benefit. So the Echelon trial was a randomized trial where patients were divided in a one-to-one -one fashion to receive either ABVD chemotherapy that we talked about was our long-standing standard of care for Hodgkin lymphoma versus a three-drug regimen called AVD, so the chemotherapy, with one of the drugs of ABVD omitted, and added to it was the targeted drug called brentuximab. So a novel group where one of the drug is the targeted brentuximab to the standard three-drug chemotherapy rather than four. And to give you sort of the high-level um, finding of this study, what the study showed was that patients receiving the novel combination actually did have a higher level of benefit in terms of what was called a modified progression-free survival, or um, in practical terms, patients who received the new combination actually were more likely to achieve a remission and uh, more likely to not need further therapy for their Hodgkin lymphoma. The benefit that was seen was uh, what we would call statistically significant. So the trial did prove that the novel combination seemed to be better. Uh, how much better was it? Well, it was it was about, um, in absolute numbers, 5% better. So 5% of people treated were uh, less likely to require other therapy. Unfortunately, you know, not even though this was a targeted drug added to chemotherapy, it's not without side effects. So the downside of this uh, benefit is that there were some added toxicities or added side effects with the new drug, and, and those new added side effects included a higher rate of uh, lowering of the white blood cell count, a greater need for requiring blood uh, white blood cell support medications, and a higher rate of uh, neurologic toxicity. So right now, I think everybody's looking at this information and trying to decide whether or not this is the new standard for Hodgkin lymphoma, meaning that you know it did seem to have improved benefit in terms of um, improving um, control of the Hodgkin lymphoma, but you know with a slight downside of added toxicity. 
So I'll just finish up a little bit by saying that, you know, this information is all extremely exciting, but what we can see is that there are definitely new drugs uh, coming out and available for lymphoma patients that um, many of them are not only in the research setting now, but coming out and available in the clinic. So I think it's becoming exceedingly important that patients and their doctors are communicating about this new information that now very often, you know, patients have lots of different treatment options as they move forward through the care of their lymphoma. And at each time point, I think it's very important for patients to discuss with their doctors, what are the available treatments? What are the the positive aspects of that treatment, what are the potential downsides, you know, what would be considered standard treatment, what are the new treatments that have come out, and, and, you know, how might this be relevant to me? So I think there has to be ongoing discussion that occurs over time because a lot of this information is really changing on a on a monthly basis. So you really do want to have ongoing conversations with your doctor and your whole care team about, you know, about how uh, about how some of this information might be important to you. And then finally I'd say that, you know, many of these drugs that we're seeing in development are still in the realm of research, meaning that they're coming through and available in clinical trials, and we hope that many of these clinical trials will show benefit and these drugs will make it on the market. But until that happens, one of the best ways to to get access to these novel treatments is to consider participating in a clinical trial. So um, in addition to asking your doctor about what treatments are available to you, you also want to ask, are there clinical trials of drugs that I can't access yet that might be relevant to me and might offer me additional options beyond what is currently approved and available in the clinic. Because as I said, what we're seeing is exciting development of novel drugs that many of them are showing lots of promise. And, you know, sometimes the way to access them early is to participate in clinical trials, which is also the way that we can get these drugs on the market faster. So with that, I think I'll end right there. And, and um, happy to take any questions as we move along through the rest of this call. Thank you so much, Dr. Sen. That was wonderful and so very informative and lots of information, and I'm sure there'll be questions for you as well during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next speaker is Mr. Maxwell Mulcahy. Ms. Mulcahy is Senior Director, Patient and Professional Education, Lymphoma Research Foundation. And I have to say that Ms. Mulcahy is truly the architect of today's program, and so we're very delighted to have him speak about the Lymphoma Research Foundation. Some of you may know about the, the foundation, but if you don't, Stay tuned because there's lots to many, many um, services that they offer and programs that would be very helpful to everyone on the call. So I'm going to turn the program over to Mr. Mulcahy. Thank you very much, Carolyn, and thank you to Cancer Care for our continued partnership. And I would also like to thank our esteemed faculty today, Dr. Stephen Ansel from Mayo Clinic in Rochester, as well as Dr. Lori Sen from the British Columbia Cancer Agency. So thank you both for sharing your time and your expertise today. Um, and thank you, of course, all for that you do for the Lymphoma Research Foundation and those affected by a lymphoma diagnosis. And I would also like to acknowledge our corporate supporters, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Celgene Corporation, and Genentech, Bio-Oncology, Biogen-IDEC, and Kite Pharma for supporting today's call. And last but not least, I would like to thank all of you for dialing in and joining us today. 
As some of you may know, the Lymphoma Research Foundation is the nation's largest nonprofit organization devoted to funding innovative research and serving the lymphoma and chronic lymphocytic leukemia communities. LRF's mission is to eradicate lymphoma and serve those touched by this disease, and we achieve this mission by providing comprehensive education programs, outreach initiatives, and patient services all year long. The foundation remains dedicated to identifying potentially life-saving therapies that treat lymphoma and CLL through an aggressively funded research program that is guided by LRF scientific leadership who are among the world's leading experts in lymphoma, and Dr. Sen and Dr. Ansel are part of that scientific body. LRF invests millions of dollars each year to combat lymphoma and CLL, and we've played a key role in accelerating the understanding and treatment of this blood cancer. To date, LRF has funded nearly $60 million in lymphoma-specific research. The foundation also remains committed to providing comprehensive, disease-specific resources, programs, and services to those who have been affected by a lymphoma diagnosis. And some of these resources include a lymphoma helpline, where our professionally trained staff can assist you in your search for disease and treatment information, resources, and other support services. A clinical trials information service, which provides information about clinical trials, and then we will do the legwork to help you identify a trial that is appropriate for your diagnosis and in your geographic area. And we also offer a lymphoma support network, which is a national one-to-one -one peer support program that pairs lymphoma patients or caregivers with others who have had a similar lymphoma experience. And disease specificity is the hallmark of the foundation, and we offer a variety of lymphoma-specific resources, which include comprehensive disease guides on non-Hodgkin lymphoma, Hodgkin lymphoma, CLL, that address disease biology and treatment options, as well as a treatment guide for options on stem cell transplantation. And those resources are available in hard copy and also as part of our digital suite. Um, we have disease-specific fact sheets in both the frontline and refractory settings across all the major subtypes of lymphoma, as well as on supportive care. We have informational disease-specific e-news, webcasts, podcasts, and videos, and we also offer an award-winning mobile app called Focus on Lymphoma, and this app provides patients and caregivers with comprehensive disease biology, treatment information on their lymphoma subtype, as well as tools to help you manage your diagnosis and treatment side effects. Uh, the Focus on Lymphoma mobile app allows users to record your doctor's sessions, manage your medications, track blood work, and document treatment side effects, and it's available for free download on the Apple App Store and Google Play, so I'd encourage you to download that app today. So I hope you take advantage of some of these great resources and services. Uh, please stay tuned because we have more teleconferences that are being scheduled this spring. Um, and for more information about LRF's programs, services, and resources, please call LRF's helpline toll-free. And the number is 800-500-9976. And also you can visit our website, which is www.lymphoma.org. So thank you very much for your time today. And I will turn the call back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Max. That was wonderful. And I just want to say a few words about cancer care, and then we're going to take questions, so stay tuned. Um, so I just want to say that cancer care is a national organization providing um, free psychosocial support services to people living with all types of cancers and all types of um, hematologic cancers and lymphomas as well. And we offer um, both individual counseling and we offer also um, 
support groups, both on the telephone and online. We have over 120 specific online support groups, both for people, again, living with different types of cancers and, and lymphomas, and also people who are caregivers as well. Um, and these are all accessible by calling Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673. And also we do offer practical and financial assistance as well to people um, and have a copay foundation as well. Um, so um, also for those of you internationally, you can visit our website at www.cancercare.org or you can, and you can pose a question there. Anyone actually in the U.S. can do the same as well. So, um, and now to, to move on, we're going to now take as many of your questions as possible. Now, I know there are a lot of people on the call. We may not be able to take all of your questions. We're going to do our very best to take as many of your questions as possible. And so I'm going to ask Glenda to tell you how to queue up questions. I know some of you already know how to do that, but for those of you who don't, and we're going to, again, try to take as many of your questions as we can. And at the end of the call, I'll let you know what to do with the questions we didn't, you didn't get to have answered. Okay. Glenda? Yeah. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And our first question comes from the line of Ronnie R. Your line is now open. Uh, hi. First of all, thank you very much for the conference. It was great. Uh, I wanted to ask a question about uh, rituximab maintenance treatment. I, if uh, Anna Hodgkin's follicular uh, uh, lymphoma is treated by CHOP, and then I guess the FDA approves two years. With the new studies, are they approving longer times, like four years, or maybe even a, not a time-specific thing for just uh, indefinite maintenance uh, rituximab? Well, thank you for that question, Ronnie. And Dr. Ansel, could you address that question in a general way? And, of course, we do recommend for all of our participants to then take the information back to treating healthcare team. Um, Dr. Ansel? Yeah, sure. Um, so that's a great question, and thank you for it. Um, I think uh, the uh, the principle at this point is that utilizing uh, rituxan maintenance is beneficial for patients, for sure. I think the challenge is just what's the right schedule and what's the right duration. So there have been a number of studies looking at giving the uh, rituximab every two months versus every three months, four doses every six months, two years versus four years, uh, in fact, in mantle cell lymphoma, even up to five years. So um, at this point, clearly there's benefit. And there's now one study, the one I mentioned, that suggests that longer is better than shorter. Um, the challenge, however, is just uh, the trade-off with potential side effects. So as you go longer and longer with treatment, the likelihood of being able of getting an infection goes up because this slowly depletes, depletes your ability to fight infections. So that's where there's a little bit of a trade-off that needs to be considered. I think at this point, the standard is still two years, and I think we're going to need a little longer follow-up and a little bit more in the way of supporting documentation to make it a standard to go longer than that. Excellent. Thank you. And um, we have a question from our online participants, and this question will be for Dr. Sen. Um, so um, any important news about SLL-CLL from um, the recent meeting? Yeah, so that's a whole exciting area of uh, lymphoma or lymphoid cancer care that we didn't talk about on the call today. Um, there were many, many studies uh, that got looked at at ASH uh, targeting CLL and SLL. As you know, it's also an area where there are many new drugs in development. Um, I think if I had to point to one piece of information, it would have to do with the use of the drug called venetoclax, particularly in, uh, in patients with 
relapsed refractory CLL, uh, SLL, and, and there was one study that uh, was presented in what we call the late-breaking abstract session, which um, highlighted results of a randomized trial where uh, it looked at the timing of the use of venetoclax and rituximab compared with a standard chemotherapy called bendamustine and rituximab. And, and um, in this head-to-head -head trial, the use of venetoclax actually resulted in a, a very, very longer control of, of CLL-SLL than the bendamustine and rituximab. So um, again, that trial was just presented, but I think most of us are looking at this information and trying to understand where venetoclax, which is slowly becoming approved for wider indications in CLL and SLL, where this might now fit into the standard treatment strategy for patients with CLL and SLL. So a lot of exciting um, studies reported, but that probably, in my mind, is the one that we need to grapple with the most because it, it probably will change kind of the sequence of, of drugs that we use. Excellent. Thank you. And um, we have a telephone question. Um, Glenda? Thank you. And our next question comes from the line of Janet W. Your line is now open. <clears throat> yes, I uh, was treated in 2004 with uh, uh, uh radioimmune therapy, and I wondered if there's any discussion at the meetings about uh, radioimmune therapy for a treatment. Thank you for your question. Um, Dr. Ansel, could you address this in a general way? And Sure thing. So again, uh, just for those that may not be familiar, Zevalin is a uh, radioimmunoconjugate. So in other words, it's an antibody that has a small amount of radiation attached directly to it. And this is a very effective therapy to deliver radiation right to the malignant cell. Uh, there have been a few uh, challenges with rolling this out broadly to the use of, of all patients, so that's why you might be hearing a little less about it now. But I will tell you that there's a resurgence right now because, as uh, Dr. Sen mentioned about immunotherapies, immune checkpoint therapy really kind of activates the immune system, and in combination with Zevalin, so Zevalin would actually provide radiation to the tumor, the tumor cells would break down, and now if one combines that with uh, immune checkpoint therapy to activate the immune system, the immune system would come and gobble up any of the tumor proteins and target the tumor at other sites in a much more uh, effective fashion. So there are trials now in, the, uh, in, in development and in, in progress using Zevalin, now combining it with immunological agents such as PD-1 blocking antibodies. So uh, I think uh, this is something, again, that you'll hear resurging into the literature, uh, although it's been a little quiet in recent past. Awesome. Thank you. And we have an online question, um, and that question will be for Dr. Sen. Um, and the question is, um, can you help us understand how you decide if someone is refractory? Do you retreat with first-line therapy and see how long the second remission lasts? And how does the refractory decision influence second-line treatment, please? And so, again, Dr. Sen, if you could address this in a general way. And... Yeah, so I, I think, um, you know, answering it generally, because you're not talking about any specific kind of lymphoma, but I presume since the question is directed at me, um, I would consider that question in, in the context of, let's say, aggressive lymphomas. And um, many aggressive lymphomas, as I said, need to be treated 
you know, quite intensively right from the beginning because we need to get them under control and, and very often our goal is to try and cure them or eradicate them. But unfortunately, some lymphomas prove to be more resistant to standard therapies and, and if lymphoma comes back after an initial response to standard therapy, we usually refer to that as a relapsed lymphoma or, you know, patient has had a relapse of their lymphoma that initially responded. However, sometimes we see that patients don't actually respond very well at all. So they don't actually get very good control and and, and we see lymphoma grow um, despite having received an initial therapy. And, and that's when we often use the term refractory, meaning that we didn't uh, even get what we would consider a, a good temporary benefit. Um, in those situations, you know, where, where we're dealing with lymphomas that are refractory to initial therapy, the, the next step is, is generally not to go back to the same treatment because we know it wasn't effective, but really to move on to other choices that might be more effective. And uh, that's a situation where um, you know, depending on the kind of lymphoma and the patient's circumstance, there may be a variety of options to consider, and those options might include other chemotherapies. They may include more intensive approaches like stem cell transplant, and now, of course, other alternatives such as CAR T-cell therapy or other novel drugs in development. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, thank you. These are wonderful questions, and uh, we're wonderful to have this great faculty here as well to, to address them. And the next question is for Dr. Ansel. Um, so if someone with mantle cell um, already used ibrutinib for 14 months, then relapsed, and that now in fourth month of using Revlimid with very slow response and shrinking with spleen, is a calibrutinib an option for treatment? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, calibrutinib being a close cousin, obviously, of abrutinib, um, <clears throat> one of the challenges is just will it be an effective approach? Um, I think uh, the hard part is that no, there have not been studies that have really checked to see whether that's true or not. I would say that I'd be a little cautious to recommend that just because many of these agents do very similarly, the, the same thing, where a calibrutinib and a brutinib both block uh, BTK uh, function. I would say also that if patients are benefiting from drugs like lenalidomide, Revlimid, um, I would uh, be patient uh, because our goal is to control the disease for the long term. And uh, sometimes agents can take time, but if the response is, is uh, happening over time, I would stick with that and not quickly jump to other therapies. There are other therapies, uh, options uh, like venetoclax that uh, was mentioned a little earlier uh, by Dr. Sen is an option, and then obviously there are other drugs, uh, including uh, abortizumib and other therapies that have been effective in uh, mantle cell lymphoma. So a number of other options, but I wouldn't quit on a, a, tr a treatment that's just working slowly. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, thank you very much. And I have a question for Dr. Sen. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing more about precision immunotherapy and chemotherapy using 2017 NGS of gut and tumor DNA to target specific biomarkers that can now be identified by Foundation Medicine in Boston. Um, could you say something about just the uh, genetic testing, um, actually genetic mutations, actually, I think, yes. Yeah, so, you know, I, I think that 
this is a really exciting area of research right now where um, the use of um, obviously genome studies or genetic studies has actually led to some of the development of novel drugs that we're seeing uh, evolve through clinical trials and out onto the market. I think the, the question might relate to uh, on an individual patient-by-patient -patient basis, you know, where the field is going in terms of doing genetic testing in individuals and using that information to try and, and uh, plan out treatment. I'd have to say that, you know, I think most cancer centers that are doing research do have um, re research ongoing where uh, we're looking at um, exploring individual patients' genetic structures of their lymphoma and, and how we might use that to guide treatment in the future. Right now, I'd say that it still is in the realm of research. So on the practical level, um, there are probably very few instances where we would be uh, using that approach, but you know the hope would be that over time, you know, we will evolve in that way, where we can very specifically look at patients' own um, DNA of their lymphoma, and it stems back to a little bit to what Dr. Ansel said right from the beginning that, you know, in the future we hope to use different techniques and even um, liquid biopsies or blood testing to be able to to pick up some of these genetic changes that might be present in individual lymphomas and, and use those to not only make the diagnosis but guide treatment. Um, but right now, I'd say that it largely is a, a research effort. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and we have one last late-breaking question for Dr. Ansel, um, and this is from one of our online participants. Um, um, is any significant progress being made in the search of the prevention for the prevention of lymphoma? So, uh, yeah, so that's a that's a very good question, and clearly that's something that uh, we would like to make real progress on. And actually, there are a number of substantial uh, uh, epidemiological studies that are specifically addressing that question. So the progress thus far is to try and uh, tease apart genetic susceptibilities, uh, common exposures, and potential uh, ways to intervene to prevent patients from getting lymphoma. This turns out to be a little more complicated than other cancers because there isn't a common genetic gene, but there may be genetic susceptibilities that when partnered with exposures to things or um, uh, other uh, genetic events can trigger a, uh, a lymphoma. And obviously, if we can identify those uh, findings early, we could intervene. So I touched on this a little bit right at the beginning, but that's one of the exciting things from this ASH meeting, was that we can detect some of these very early genetic events that happen in tumor cells out of the peripheral blood. So now we're beginning to identify patients who may be at substantial risk. The challenge we have right now is just when and how to intervene. So this is a space to watch. We don't have uh, information just yet on exactly what to do. Excellent. Well, that was a wonderful question, really, um, and thank you so much um, for that response, Dr. Ansel. I want to thank our speakers. You've been outstanding. I want to thank our participants for asking such remarkably informed questions and really for really what your, your questions really helped to make this call even more exciting. And um, I did say that I would let you all know how to get your questions answered if you didn't get to ask your questions. So let me actually move on to that. Um, I actually um, want to let you all know that um, 
that uh, if you have a question, a medically-based question, of course, we never want to take your healthcare team out of that loop. And so often asking a question on one of these programs is a question that you may want to ask your healthcare team. But many of you also like to go to other places for your questions to get them answered, and I cannot think of a more wonderful place to go to than the Lymphoma Research Foundation. They have a wonderful helpline at 1-800-500-9976, and you'll be getting that information. When you get your evaluation, you'll all be getting these resources um, you know, for you to actually access. It's a wonderful resource for you um, to, to access. Um, and in addition, if any of you wish to pursue psychosocial counseling or services from Cancer Care, you can call us at 1-800-813-4673 or website www.cancercare.org. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, however, we do not want any or one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with lymphoma. We want you to now know that you have all these resources that you can access. And I want to highlight particularly Lymphoma Research Foundation um, and um, I also just want to also call out just a thank you to them for all that they do to bring information and the publications and just the wonderful fact sheets and all the things that they do, podcasts, webcasts, everything they do to actually get you all this wonderful information. So do take advantage of that resource as well. And um, I just want to thank you all for participating today, um, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all very much. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.